0: Amen. Well, it is good to be here, and um, I was told um, before I left um, Glendale to plant Redeeming Grace. I was told that uh, Jarvis, you better be weary because um, you, what you're experiencing here at Glendale as the staff associate minister, is going to be a whole different ball game when you become a pastor. And as a fool, I thought. no, it can't be that much. Well, two years later, I'm able to get back down here. So, um, so, but I thank you for inviting me. Um, I thank Pastor Jones for, for continually being on me about trying to get down here. Um, I'm glad to be here and I'm glad to receive a lot of the love that you have shown me. Um, That's really been encouraging. It's nice to know you could be gone for such a while and still receive the love of, of people who are still dear to your heart. So thank you. For that. Thank you for your encouragement. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your support. And um, we love you. Amen. 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 Well, it was said of um, the reformer John Calvin, he was um, preaching through a series on uh, 1 Corinthians, and um, he came down with a sickness that kept him out for about a month or two. And he stopped at one portion of 1 Corinthians. And then when he got back about a month or two later, he picked right up where he left off so i figured i'd do the same thing um since i was in a series on david when i left here two years ago let's go back there okay (laughs) so i'm gonna invite you to go back to first samuel chapter 25 and it's a lengthy passage um we're just going to touch it um i want to point i want to just look at the three major figures in the passage but i want to read it again just for it to be fresh um so 1 Samuel, chapter 25, uh, verses 1 through 35. And again, our point will be just a point on the first or the three major figures in this passage. 1 Samuel 25, verses 1 through 35. This is God's holy word. Then Samuel died, and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich and had 3,000 sheep and a 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. That David heard... that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, Have a long life, Be peace, peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name, and they waited. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David, and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men whose origin I do not know? So David's young men retracted, retraced rather their way and went back. And they came and told him according to all these words. David said to his men, each of you gird on your sword. So each man girded on his sword and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to to greet our master, and he scorned them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us by both day and night. And all the time we were with them, tending the sheep. Now therefore, know and consider what you should do. For evil is plotted against our master and against all his household. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Then Abigail hurried and took two hundred loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and a hundred clusters of raisins, And two hundred cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. She said to her young man, go on before me. Behold, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. It came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain. That behold, David and his men were coming down towards her. So she met them. Now David had said, surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, "'On me alone, my lord, let be the blame.' And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is, the, is his name, and folly is with him. But I, but I your maidservant, did not see the young, man, young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your, your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood, And from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then let the enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young man who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil will not be found in you all your days. Should anyone rise up to pursue you and seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord does for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel, this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause, and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord deals well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has sent you this day to meet me. And blessed be your discernment, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, Unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal until the morning light as much as one male. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, go up to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. Amen. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please join me in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, what a joy it is again to worship you and to praise you and and lord as a song we sang not too long ago lord we are truly here to give you all of our worship and all of our praise and lord in this preaching hour lord i pray that you'll prepare our hearts uh, to do just that lord lord help us to meditate on the things we'll hear help us to see uh, the glory the glorious your glorious nature in these things and also lord just as much help us to see the glory of our savior in all these things Lord, give me the words that I ought to say, hold back anything I ought not to say, and let this all be done for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When we think about important biblical figures, many obvious names come to mind. Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, David, Isaiah, the Apostle Paul, and without question, our Lord Jesus Christ. However, within this list, there are a few unsung figures who serve just as prominently in God's story of redemption. Names like Rahab, Esther, Jochebed, Jael, Ruth, Deborah, and Hannah. In other words, women who were used by God to defeat Israel's enemies, overthrow wicked kingdoms, and perform actions by faith which ultimately led to his kingdom and purposes being fulfilled. And among this list of extraordinary women, we must put the one we will be looking at today in that list, and that is Abigail. Quite simply, in this marvelous account here in 1 Samuel 25, we see that Abigail serves as a great expression of a woman of faith. We see that she serves as a great expression of godliness, which both men and women can observe and glean from. And we see that she serves as a great expression of what it looks like When a person in possession of a robust and healthy character is driven and fueled by saving grace. In essence, beloved, by looking at this account, it would be easy to just write this sermon strictly about her. And quite frankly, we could make connections between how she's shown in this passage. And let's just say the Proverbs 31 woman. And while this would indeed be unwise to do because our focus for all our preaching and teaching should be pointed to, to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, nevertheless, in doing this, I don't think it's sinful to honor how Abigail's behavior here has a major impact on both David and Nabal. And as we'll see much later in the life of David, we'll see it have a greater impact on the kingdom of Israel as a whole. So this, in part, will be our mission today. What I want to do is a character study of sorts concerning the three major figures in this story, namely Nabal, David, and Abigail. And my hope in doing this is to highlight even more the amazing actions of Abigail in this account when we actually take a look at her so that we can get a sense of what the character of godliness actually looks like. Now, again, to start this, what I would like to do is take a look, again, at our first of our three major figures and that is first Nabal and I want to put Nabal under this subheading the character of a fool the character of a fool now there may be some of you thinking well geez Jarvis I mean isn't it kind of rough to call this man a fool I mean I mean isn't that is that really necessary and to that I'll only say that this is why it pays to be familiar with the biblical Hebrew because beloved if we did a study on the word fool, or we looked up that word in Hebrew, we would find that the, the word for Hebrew, in Hebrew for fool, is Nabal. It's Nabal. So, in essence, when I'm calling him a fool, I'm just quoting scripture. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean. However, it's also important to know that this is not where this passage ends when it comes to explaining Nabal's character. For instance, notice how when Nabal is introduced, we don't get his name first. In fact, it's kind of randomly mentioned. But rather, we first get a description of his wealth. Now, beloved, this is key to understanding who he truly is because if you happen to pay attention to the naming of individuals in the scriptures, it normally sets the path to who they truly are. For example, when the angel came to Joseph in Matthew 1, to announce the birth of our Savior, we're told that his name would be Jesus. Why? Because he would save his people from their sins. Jesus means God is salvation. When Moses was born, Pharaoh's daughter gave him that name so that because she, quote, drew him out of the water. And this would later point to how God would use him to draw the nation of Israel out of Egypt by ironically leading them through the crossing of the waters of the Red Sea. And finally, we have Abram whom God later names Abraham because he would become a father to many nations. However, once more, when we look at Nabal, we don't see this. Again, his name is stated after his wealth. So what's being implied here? Well, beloved, what the writer is trying to tell us is that by doing this, that it is Nabal's riches which has made him the man that he is. In other words, he's not just a fool. He's a rich fool. He's a rich fool. His money has made him think of himself more highly than he should. He thinks that because he is financially well off, that he doesn't need anyone or anything to make him better than who he is. He is the embodiment of Paul's words to Timothy, namely that the love of money truly is the root of all evil. And when we add in another twist to this story found in verse 3, we find out that he's also a Calebite. Now, this issue takes on an even more striking context because, beloved, the Calebites were known for their intense devotion to the Lord. And this should serve as no surprise, because if you recall, when Israel finally entered the promised land, there were only two people who made it from the beginning of the journey to the end of the journey. And who was that? Joshua and Caleb, the men who chose to follow and leave their households in the full service of the Lord. But once more, we see that Nabal seems to be the black sheep of his tribe. He's harsh and evil in his dealings. He has no godliness within him. He doesn't want to seek after things eternal. He doesn't see his need for God's gracious gift of salvation. No, he's rich. He has everything he could materially want. And that's all that matters to him. To him, life is good. And in the end, beloved, Nabal serves as the pure embodiment of David's words in Psalm 14:1, Namely, that the fool, or the Nabal, says in his heart, there is no God. In short, beloved, even though Nabal doesn't come out and say he doesn't believe in God, his lack of desire when it comes to godliness and his focus concerning his possessions makes this very obvious. And this should serve as a lesson to all of us that the accumulation of wealth or even coming from a godly family doesn't instantly put one in the character of holiness. You know, every now and again, because I'm a minister, there'll be someone who will ask me the question, is my son Jaden going to be a preacher like you when he grows up? And usually when I hear questions asked me a lot of times, I'll have a prepared answer already to go along with that. And I've prepared an answer for that. And it's basically this, when someone asks me that question, I just simply say, well, my prayer more than anything right now is that he first comes to saving faith in Jesus. I mean, before we start putting people in the pulpit, let's get a profession going, okay? In short, holiness is not something that's passed down, beloved. It can't be assumed on someone just because another person they are related to may have it. Beloved, there are people in this world who are morally great people. For example, there are many people who who are financially loaded, and they give every year more money to charities than some of us make on our jobs as a whole. There are people who every year use their wealth to do very needed and important things in our society, such as starting new schools, funding hospitals, and creating businesses where the the impoverished people really can get on their feet. Equally, there are many people who have grown up in homes where their parents or their grandparents revered and honored the Lord with all their hearts. And in their raising, they might have participated in things like youth ministries and sang in the church choir or even going on missionary trips to third world countries. However, beloved, some of these people, despite their passion and despite their selflessness in doing all of these things, will eventually miss out on the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because ultimately, holiness comes through having our faith placed in the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is where our righteousness lies, beloved, not in our deeds and definitely not in our possessions. So, beloved, at the end of the day, whether a person is as wicked and ruthless as Nabal or they're just the opposite, they're loving, they're kind and gracious in their deeds and in their material gains— if they don't have a relationship with the Savior, if they live their lives as though the attainment of eternal life is something that has little value to them regarding their existence, then, beloved, the Bible tells us plainly that these people are living like Nabals. They're living like fools. In essence, they are no different than Nabal despite the fact that their behavior might be. Beloved, whatever we may have, Whoever we may be, we must see all these things as rubbish compared to our knowing Jesus Christ. As the hymn goes, Jesus must be our priceless treasure. As another song goes, we must desire him more than silver and gold. And we must understand that there is no good works, beloved, which honor the Father apart from what we do in his name. So, beloved, our look at Nabal shows a man who is foolish not just for his attitude towards other people, but more directly, a man who is foolish because of his lack of care and having his place faith, his faith place rather, in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And this now leads us to the second of our three figures in this text. Namely, I want to look now at David. I want to now look at David and I want to discuss the character of Fury. The character of Fury. So we now come to the portion of our study where we check on our hero in the story. And as we see here, he's still on the run from Saul. And in verse 1, we're given some information which I think possibly adds to the stress of what he's dealing with right now. Namely, we're told that the prophet Samuel, the man whom God sent to announce and anoint David as the next king of Israel, and the man who was the spokesman for God to his people, he's died. And in the midst of this national tragedy, David and his army find themselves in the wilderness of Paran, where they get the news that Nabal is shearing his sheep in nearby Carmel. Now, it's important to note that the shearing of sheep here was a big event in Israel, not to mention a very prosperous one. In fact, even today in countries like South Africa and New Zealand and in Australia, It's seen sort of as a sporting event of sorts, and and they are, believe it or not, sheep-shearing world championships awarded to the best of the best. However, even though David was indeed a shepherd himself and more than likely could have competed and won any of these contests, thus adding to his financial stability while on the run, his interest is more in the golden corral or Shoney's buffet of food, which is often supplied at this event. In essence, David can envision he and his army eating very well now. And in verses 5 through 8, we're told why he has a lot of confidence in this particular truth. Look with me there in that passage. Verses 5 through 8 of 1 Samuel 25. It reads as follows. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, Have a long life, peace be to you, And peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servant and to your son, David amen. So from what we see in these verses, David's army and Nabal's shearers have a bit of a history going on, okay? Apparently David and his army protected Nabal's shearers from danger while they were performing their tasks. So based on this fact, David now assumes that it would be no problem getting some food from Nabal because of this actual truth. In short, David is thinking, well, I looked out for him when he needed it. Therefore, I can count on the fact he's going to look out for me when I need it. I mean, one hand washes the other. However, what David is about to find out is everything we just talked about concerning Nabal in our first point. Because Nabal sends the following response back to David in verses 10 through 11. Look with me there. He says, who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master." Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to the men whose origin I do not know? Now, when David says, who is this David, beloved? Clearly, he's not implying that he has no knowledge of David because he calls him the son of Jesse in the same breath. But rather, when he uses the statement, this is basically what Nabal is saying. Who does this guy think he is? Why does he think he's relevant in my eyes? What would make him think I would care about his welfare? After all, he's running from Saul. He's a fugitive. He's a vagabond. And I'm supposed to look out for him when he's doing this and I'm going to get myself in trouble? Is this guy nuts? What's wrong with him? Now, beloved, let's face it. That's a cold response. That's a cold response. I mean, it's one thing to say no. But to throw jabs and insults at the man as well, I mean, good grief, that's a bit much. Don't you think? However, once again, it exposes what kind of a man Nabal truly is. It's not enough for him to just turn David down, but there needs to be a statement when he does it. Nabal needs to show him, at least in his mind, who's really the boss here. Mm. He needs to show him who's really in charge. And while it would be easy to simply find fault with Nabal and point towards his attitude in this passage, in reality, there are actually two things we can point to regarding David, which shows that his hands aren't entirely clean as well in this situation. The first thing we can point to when it comes to David is this. He presumes himself upon Nabal's property. He presumes himself upon Nabal's property. Once more, let's look at David's words in verses 6 through 8. David tells his servants, Have a long life, peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all you have. Now I have heard you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants, and to your son, David. Now, in reading this, again, pick up David's mindset here. In essence, David is making a request for him and his army based on a service he previously performed for Nabal without Nabal knowing about it. Again, it's basically, I looked out for you, so now I need you to look out for me. However, when David gets back Nabal's response, verse 13 tells us that he becomes pretty much white hot. And it's here where David tells his men these words Each of you gird on your sword. In essence, this is what he's saying. Uh, This guy got the nerve to turn me down? Hmm. Really? After I put my men and myself on the line for his shepherds, and on top of that, he's gonna be nasty about it? Hmm. Oh, it's on, guys. Get your (laughs) weapons. Because we're about to go up there, we're about to wreak havoc, because this guy doesn't know who he's dealing with. So we see there's a lot of maleness in this conflict here, okay? Now, beloved, at this point, we need to do some simple analyzing here. Would it have hurt Nabal to grant David and his army his request? Would it have hurt him? No. Did Nabal truly have to be so mean-spirited in his response to David? absolutely not however in saying these things there's one truth we can't overlook concerning this matter namely that the food which David requested was Nabal's it was his food in other words beloved even though David performed an amazing act for Nabal an act that added to his wealthy status and we could say added to his foolishness as well Nabal was under no obligation to really reward David for his services There was no deal made between the men, so thus David's response to Nabal's rejection of what he wanted was also unfounded. For David to get mad to the point of wanting to kill Nabal and his household over this rejection, beloved, shows that David's perspective was off in this situation. He thought he was owed something by Nabal, when in actuality, he was not. And beloved, when we look at this very point in a practical matter, This is an issue we see in our society so much today. For example, you have people who will cause conflicts on their jobs because they have served there several years and they keep getting passed over for promotions they think they deserve. In the home, you have the development of sibling rivalries because one child seems to get favorable responses from their parents while the other child, who's been loving and caring and considerate, seems to always be taken advantage of. And from a spiritual concept, we also see this played out in particular when it comes to the matter of how God saves people. In essence, there are actually professing believers who will overvalue their own worth and will actually get upset when God saves people whom they deem as unworthy. For example, I remember some years back, I was watching a documentary with a family member who who was passed on already. And this family member at the time was serving as a deacon in his church, and he was really well-respected in his community. Um, And we was watching a documentary on the Son of Sam killings, which happened in New York City in the late 70s. And some of you probably know about it. And for those of you who do, you know that the police arrested a man for the killings by the name of David Berkowitz. And all glory to God now, David Berkowitz is now a professing believer in Jesus Christ. And I recall as we were watching this, and I had that in my mind that he wasn't now a professing believer. I made the comment, you know, God's saving grace is truly amazing, isn't it? Amen. You know, I, I just made that comment; it just came out of my mouth as I, I, I was just thinking about it. Right. To which this family member, who again served as a deacon in his church and was well respected, said, "Well, why would God give any saving grace or any mercy to a, a person like that? I mean, look at what he did. Okay." Well, beloved, putting aside the fact that this particular family member, despite his position and reputation, clearly doesn't have a good view of God's mercy, hmm. beloved, the bottom line answer to his question is very simple. The reason why God can give David Mer- Berkowitz, as well as any sinner, mercy, beloved, is because, quite simply, of one thing <laughs> it's his. It's his. He told Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Beloved, mercy, grace, salvation, regeneration, atonement, adoption, union with Christ, eternal life. All of these gifts and the likes are possessions of God. He is free to give it to whoever he wants and in the manner that he wants. And for us to think that we somehow get a say in whom God sees fit to give it to is not only just the height of ignorance, beloved, but in actuality, it makes us just as foolish as Nabal and as wrong as David is in this portion of the passage. Beloved, let us not be like David in overvaluing ourselves Hmm. and thinking God owes us good things because we're so righteous. No, beloved, the only thing God owes us And I don't care how devoted we are to him is his eternal wrath. The only thing we are owed is to be eternally punished for the many sins we have done against our holy creator. And the reason why, beloved, we don't get what we're owed is because someone else, namely Jesus Christ, paid the debt of what we owed and was gracious enough to share with us what he earned by his works namely the good pleasure and satisfaction of God. So it's not our place to attempt to take ownership of the things where God has engraved his hand, his name, rather. But rather, we must be grateful for whatever God has done for us. And just as much, we need to find joy when he has done good things for others, knowing that none of us are worthy to receive the good which comes from his hand. And speaking along those lines, this now gets us to our second point, one that we have put our finger on already, in particular in closing out this this prior point we're talking about. Another reason why David is wrong here is because David's anger makes him forget his own discretions. Hmm. David's anger makes him forget his own discretions. Again, David feels like he's wronged. He feels like he's been taken advantage of. Hmm. He's thinking, how could this man do to me... What can, I mean, excuse me, how could this man do this to me after all I've done for him? And in the midst of being in his feelings, David is drifting away from one important truth. Namely, that he hasn't been quite a choir boy himself. In essence, beloved, if we were to go back into David's history up to this point, here are some of the things that we could see about him that would conclude that God would feel the same way about him as he's feeling about Nabal. For example, do you recall when David played a role in getting Ahimelech the priest killed, lying and getting the the consecrated bread? Do you recall the time where David went through the land of Gath and instead of trusting in God, he made himself a, a madman in order to get through? Do you recall the time where David listened to unwise counsel from his army and cut the robe of Saul when they were in the cave? You see, beloved, in spots like these, God could have turned to David and said, how could he do this to me after all I've done for him? God could have felt wronged. God could have felt taken advantage of. Just as David wants to go up to Nabal and take him out, beloved, God could have brought down his wrath and taken David out. In short, when it comes to God, without grace involved in this situation, David and Nabal are on the same playing field. They're the same reflection in the mirror, beloved. And this truth speaks volumes to us, especially as Christians. Namely, we must not forget who we are and where we came from. Namely, beloved, we are sinners saved by grace. Beloved, whenever we are wrong, we must be careful not to think that the sins committed against us are greater than the sins we committed against a holy God. Beloved, we must never forget that our sins cost the Son of God, Jesus Christ, his very life. The sins that we committed caused him to be whipped 39 times on his back, have a crown of thorns pressed hard upon his head, had him laid on a wooden cross with both his hands and his feet nailed to it, and for a temporary period of time had him separated from the very father that he has shared his glory with since the beginning of time. And beloved, just as much, we must not forget that all that the Son of God went through on that terrible day was done done for those of us who would believe in his name. In short, he endured these things so that his people would not have to. He endured these things so that the God who would be just to pour down his wrath upon us would give us the right and privilege to call him Father. So therefore, when we think about how much forgiveness there is in Christ, how wise is it for us to think that any sin we've committed against us is unforgivable? How wise is it for us to think, Father, I thank you for giving me grace, However, for the person that wronged me, I want retribution. Mm. And while I'm on this point, let me flip the coin for a moment and take this side road. When we think about how much forgiveness there is in Christ, how can we equally say that another person is silly or stupid to offer forgiveness to the one who has wronged them? How can we encourage another person to live in their hate and their rage? How can we even think something such as not forgiving someone because of the color of their skin or that you shouldn't have to forgive someone because of the color of yours? Hmm. Yeah, I said it. (laughs) Beloved, how we need to stop letting the world Hmm. control our thoughts. How we have to stop letting the world put us under cultural pressures that push us away from something God has ordained us to do. Amen. Oh, beloved, how we need to focus our mind on heavenly things, how we need to keep our eyes on the cross as we continue to walk this Christian journey. Beloved, hurt, pain, sorrow, and grief will always be a part of this world and thus our existence as a whole. However, as Christians we are called to rise above those things. We are called to consider Christ. And when we choose not to do this, beloved, there is no victory or vindication in that. But rather, there is only shame and rejection of the very grace which has planted us in the river of eternal life. So again, while no one can fault David for being somewhat upset, his approach towards Nabal just as much as his reaction and hearing Nabal's response makes David just as guilty in this situation as well. And now finally we come to our third character in our message, the real hero in this story, namely Abigail, and it's here where she shows the character of faithfulness. The character of faithfulness. Now in this final portion, I want to highlight two things that Abigail does in this narrative that makes her stand out as different from what we've discussed with both David and Nabal. First, we see, number one, that Abigail diffuses the situation. She diffuses the situation. In verses 14 through 17, we're told when the news that David and his army is coming up to slaughter Nabal and all comes public, rather, one of Nabal's servants immediately runs to Abigail and explains to her what has happened and what David plans to do about it. And with this news told to her, Abigail says these words in verses 18 through 19. Look with me there. It reads, then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain, and a hundred clusters of raisins, and two hundred cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. She said to her young men, go on before me, behold, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Pick up on that last part. Now, beloved, again, pick up on that last statement that she did not tell her husband she was doing this. So not only does the servant not feel the need to tell Nabal about what's about to happen, but we also see here that Abigail don't feel the need to tell Nabal what's about to happen. Now, why is this so? Why is this so? Well, as we have talked about, Nabal's a foolish man. They know if he had been told this news, he might have just brushed it off, could have scolded his servant or Abigail for even bringing this matter to him. Or even worse, he could have just basically called David out and simply say, like we used to say when I was in high school, you want to come after me? If you feel froggy, jump. (laughs) However, both the servant and Abigail knew that each of these responses would have brought catastrophic consequences. So in turn, Abigail in particular makes the wise decision to take a portion of the food to David and his men in order to satisfy the situation. Mm. Now, keep in mind, again, Abigail was under no obligation to do this. She could have taken the same approach as her husband and tried her best to gear up the people for battle. However, Abigail understood the kindness and even more the necessity of what David and his army did for her shearers. Mm. Because remember, we're not just talking about the protection of lives here. But also, we're talking about the protection of their revenue, because this is how they earn their money in part. Thus, because of this, she made the decision that they should receive some appreciation for providing the security that they gave. Now, beloved, this act is one that speaks a lot about the character of Abigail. Namely, that she is a person who is committed to what she deems fair or right, despite the attitude of her husband. In short, she doesn't melt under his dominance. She doesn't cower to his power. She doesn't falter under his pressure. No. Now, does this mean that she doesn't, that she's not rather a submissive wife? No, it doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that she recognizes her first submission is to her Lord. She does what pleases him above everything else. And this is one of the characteristics of godly behavior. Namely, it looks to please and honor God over all things, including our relationships. And when you look at so many relationships today, this is something that's often neglected. And beloved, since I started ministry, it's amazed me how much of a conflict this is in professing Christians' homes. There are many Christians who will abandon godliness for the sake of their mates, thinking that this is what's being faithful or this is what faithfulness looks like when in actuality it's just the opposite. No, beloved, faithfulness is standing in obedience to the Lord and being guided by him even if your mate decides to do otherwise. You know, I recall when I was on staff at another church that a fellow minister got into a very, very heated battle with the pastor of our church. In fact, it was so heated that this minister ended up temporarily leaving the church for a period of time. Now, this minister's wife was just as active in our church. I mean, she taught the Sunday school for the little children. She helped set up the table for communion. And she also was one of the officers of our mother board at the church. And due to the fact that she and the minister were in the process of looking for a new fellowship during this time, and they weren't attending any Sunday school themselves, She actually got the okay, she went to our pastor and got the okay to at least teach the Sunday school class because our church really didn't have anyone to replace her. And by the way, it should also be noted that her husband was okay with this, at least in the beginning. However, as time went on and he started to stew over what happened, he started to change his spots. So after a while, as she was coming back from Sunday school, he would get in a habit of yelling at her. He accused her of being unfaithful. And one time he got so mad he went to her car and took the battery out to make sure she couldn't go. I wish I was joking. And while looking at her face, it was very palpable that these things were taking an emotional and and physical toll upon her. She continued to persevere. She didn't miss teaching the class, even that day when her battery got out. She called a friend. She continued being a loving and devoted wife to him up until the point where her actions actually became the catalyst for our husband and our pastor to sit down with each other and to reconcile their differences. Again, despite the conflict in her home, this woman's primary focus was pleasing the Lord. Just like Abigail, she was under no obligation, beloved, to come and teach our children. She could have claimed several different things, such as, I'm no longer a part of the church, so find yourself another teacher. Or she could have said, you hurt my husband, so thus you hurt me. Hmm. However, instead, she took the stance of, I'm going to do what I feel pleases the Lord that I serve. She wasn't afraid to endure some coldness in her home, beloved, because the fire in her heart for God was enough to keep her warm. Amen. And once more, this is what we see with Abigail here. A fire to do what pleases God, no matter what consequences might arise because of it. Despite the behavior of her husband, she stayed loving and faithful to her Lord, and in turn, the love and faithfulness that she showed played a key role in how she was able to function within her role within her home and was able to overcome also the expressions and actions of her husband's ungodliness. But secondly, here's another characteristic of godliness that Abigail shows. Namely, she takes the blame for Nabal's sinful behavior. She takes the blame for Nabal's sinful behavior. If you notice in verses 24 and 28, Abigail tells David to put the blame for all that happened on her. Even though she knows her husband is a foolish man and even acknowledges it, okay, she embraces his fault in this matter. Or if I can put it in this vernacular, you know what Abigail's become to Nabal? His sin bearer. His sin bearer. In, other, in, order, in order to bring peace to the situation, she sacrifices herself. She takes Nabal off the hook by putting her on, her, on the hook. Amen. Now, beloved, don't miss how big this is of Abigail to do something like this. Because I don't need to tell you that being in a difficult marriage, if, if, if some of you have even gone through this, being in a difficult marriage is not an easy thing to deal with. And when we look at today's society, when it comes to marriage, especially in the Christian setting, it should come as no surprise that there aren't a lot of Abigails out there. There are not a lot of people who can deal with difficult marriages like she's dealing with. For example, I remember I was mentoring a a couple who are some dear friends of mine a few years back. And at the time, they were going through a, a struggle. And the wife was so frustrated in being married and putting up with her husband's stuff that she just flat out told me, she was like, Jarvis, what I need you to do is this. Just tell me to leave my husband and I'm going to do it. Just tell me. Tell me. I wasn't expecting you to laugh off of that. but Now, beloved, it needs to be said here that she had no biblical grounds for divorce. Her husband didn't do anything that gave her biblical grounds to, to go through that. But in her frustration, she was so fed up that she thought in her mind if she could just get the okay from a minister. That somehow God would get behind what she wanted to do. And beloved, I wish I could say that this situation was the worst I've experienced. But in addition to this, I also know couples who have prayed for their mates to cheat on them. I know of couples who have prayed for their mates to die and I even know of some couples who have put these, tried to put these things in, move, in motion for their mates to step in because they're all under the belief that God just doesn't want me unhappy. Hmm. So, beloved, keeping in mind what Nabal has put into motion here with David, hmm. and adding the fact that Abigail has to deal with these type of things from her husband really on a daily basis, What Abigail is doing here is not some small feat, but rather it is fruit of just how much her godly character has evolved and been shaped through the difficult spot that she has sovereignly been placed in. Mm. And beloved, when we look at how Abigail brings reconciliation to this matter, when we look at how Abigail becomes her husband's sin bearer to spare her household from David's wrath, it doesn't take much thinking to see that Abigail's actions here are a picture of the actions of someone else who would later come from the line of David, namely our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Hmm. You see, beloved, just like Abigail, the Lord Jesus brought reconciliation to a hostile situation himself. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22 reads as follows. It says that we were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, Yet Christ has now reconciled us in his fleshly fleshly body through death in order to present us before God as holy and blameless and beyond reproach. But not only that, we are also told that Christ has also become our sin bearer. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, the apostle, using the framework of Isaiah 53, 5, says this about Christ. That he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. Amen. So, beloved, here's the bottom line. We can look at Nabal and say, jeez, what a fool. Wow, this guy's a real card. How can Abigail be married to a goofball like this? However, beloved, again, here's something we need to keep in mind in saying all that. Namely, from a spiritual perspective, we are Nabal. We are Nabal. You see, before we were saved, we had said in the expressions of our heart, or even verbally, some of us, that there is no God. And that thus made us fools. We had allowed the the material things, rather, of this world to shape our thinking and our character. We had returned nothing but evil to a God who had done nothing but shown us good. And just like with David, when it came to Nabal, because of our ways, this same God had placed his vengeance and wrath upon us, looking to destroy us for the transgressions which we have done. And let it be known also, beloved, that this would have been the case if we stayed in this condition, unaware of our fate, unless the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is, by the way, our greater Abigail, Mm -hmm. came and sacrificed himself and brought reconciliation, brought peace, and brought grace to our situation and on our behalf. Beloved, our only hope to be delivered from the wrath of Almighty God. Our only hope to gain peace with the God whom we have grossly offended is to solely have our faith placed in the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, beloved, as we conclude this message, let me ask you this question. Has your faith been placed in the Lord Jesus? Has he appeased the wrath of God on your behalf? Beloved, if this has not happened to you, Then know that you are still in your sins, and just as important, you have a God who is still angry with you, and you have a God whose wrath still remains on you. And just like David before Abigail appeared to him, he's coming for retribution, he's coming for justice. So, beloved, have your trust, have your faith, have your whole place in Jesus Christ, God's sole means of salvation. Don't live your life anymore as one who is in rebellion to Him. Don't live your life as though your material possessions are what makes you who you are. Beloved, don't live your life no longer as a NABAL, as a fool. But rather turn to the Lord Jesus, see what has been accomplished for you solely by his work and place your trust in the fact that it is only through him and him alone where you will receive the satisfaction of God as well as the mercy you need to stand as faultless before his presence. So as we've seen in this message, there's a lot to be said about how the character of Nabal, the character of David, and the character of Abigail, rather, expresses themselves within this narrative. And there's also a lot that we can examine within our own hearts when we find ourselves in these various character spots as well. Beloved, we must always understand that we as Christians have been called to a higher standard than the world. Namely, God has saved us. God has called us to exhibit a godly character, a character of Christ likeness as he continues to conform us into the image of his dear son. Amen. So in all our behavior and in all our doing beloved, let us strive to show this calling the best way we can, using the message of the gospel as our fuel to actually do this. And in doing this beloved, Let us also heed to the words of the Apostle Peter in his second epistle in chapter 3, verse 18, where he says the following. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.